The following message is entitled, Proven Faith, Not Seeing is Believing. This message was given during the evening service on March 12, 2023, at the Eastside Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois, by Pastor John Stevens. Tonight, we, as for the sake of those on recording, I'm continuing on at the end of verse 7 of 1 Peter 1. We're going to look at the issue of revelation, at the revelation of Jesus Christ, and then go into verse 8. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. As I said in my prayer before the recording started, Peter is moving us, transitioning us from the reality of suffering with joy in verses 6 and 7 into biblically counseling us concerning suffering. As you all know, some remotely as well listening to recording, I listen to a lot of various sermons and I have noticed that there are many preachers and teachers out there that teach that suffering comes into the Christian life, but unfortunately very few say this, that suffering is the Christian life. I have found over the years and even in commentaries that American theologians who are Bible-believing cannot, simply cannot, wrap their head around the fact that we wealthy, comfortable, democratic, democracy, republic, whatever you want to call this nation, we cannot accept the fact that we're going to suffer. But we do, from subtle ways to overt, terrifying ways. I was witnessing to an unbeliever outside this church, and the individual was trying to convince me that he was along the same lines as me, and that he was a believer, but he lives as a pagan. And uh, he wanted me to know that he has a moral standard like I do. And uh, when I confronted that, as gently as I could, he suffered me. And he suffered me by walking away. That's subtle. We can turn off family, friends with the truth. We can get bad looks. That's a form of suffering, but it's subtle. All the way up to the fire in verse 7, tested by fire, which has to include outward, overt persecution. So, this is not a popular subject. And again, I've listened to some sermons recently, and there seems to be a flavor of suffering that is offered up. But unlike what we just saw in the video in our church here tonight before the sermon, where the Friends of Israel teacher got it right on the money. He said, this is in our DNA. We are called to suffer. And I think of all those that are believers that should understand the reality of it, it would be a Christian Jew. Because they're getting it from both ends. We as Christians suffer as Christians, but Christian Jews suffer from everybody in the world, including Jewish people in Israel that persecute Jewish Christians. The lowest rung of the suffering ladder are Christians who are Jews. I would hope and pray that we would realize as persecution grows in this country that the Christian doesn't experience suffering at times. It is part and parcel of our Christian life. I need to remind you once again, I feel an urgent reminder in this dangerous day in which we're living, that you turn to um, 
1 Peter chapter 4, same epistle, and remind yourself, as I remind myself and you, that we are called to suffer. Suffering is in every chapter of 1 Peter. We are going to get our fill of it. Chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. As I've pointed out in previous commentary reminders on that verse 1, this destroys the idea that I've heard many times over the years from professed believers when I say, well, you need to do this or that because Christ did it, we're to follow him. And the answer I always get back from people who don't like that answer is, I'm not Christ, I'm not God. Well, you can see right there that the example of suffering is Christ. We'll see that next Sunday morning, by the way, when we talk about remaining in a local church from 1 Timothy once again, picking up from this morning, that um, Christ answers, helps us to see in the Old and the New Testament that God calls Christians to have a certain mission field to evangelize, and he wants us in a certain church to do service. And that is a radical concept in the American church system today. But we'll see that. So in next Sunday morning, I'll be talking once again about remaining in a local church and using Christ as our example. And now here in verse 1, he's our example for suffering. Last verse of chapter 4, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God, suffering not according to the will of God would be suffering for our own sin and foolishness. But suffering according to the will of God, it is God's will that we suffer, shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. So, that word entrust is the same Greek word used on the cross by Christ when he committed himself in the hands of the Father. We're to trust our minds to a faithful creator in doing what is right, 1 Peter 4.19. This is part of God's will for our lives. We are called to suffer. In between these two verses, as I mentioned a couple Sunday nights ago, is verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing. Testing what? Your salvation. This is where we look to see if we're truly saved. And then... The very thing that we have in 1 Peter 1 from Peter, verse 6, reappears in verse 13. We're to have the, share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. It is the joyful, suffering salvation that we are experiencing. All right, so back to 1 Peter 1. We come upon an issue that most Christians have no relevance in, have no belief in, and no hope in. And that is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The sermon title tonight is Proven Faith, Not Seeing is Believing. Of course, the colloquial term or the phrase is seeing is believing. But what I am attempting, what Peter is telling us in 1 Peter 1 as we get roll eventually into verse 8, is we're to have proven faith not seeing is believing. We're to have joy despite suffering, verse 6. That's Roman numeral number 1 in your note sheet on the back side. Actually, I don't have it. I think I left it out this time. Yeah, I put the introduction in completely. So you don't have that in your outline. Just the uh, introduction is where it starts. But anyways, um, for the sake of more room to write, that's why I did that. So we saw in verse 6 that we're to have joyful thoughts towards our salvation while we're suffering. And now verse 7 is dealing with 
Christians are to be joyful while suffering for Christ is proof of saving faith. And then Roman number three is going to be starting tonight at some point on the backside, number three. Christians are to be joyful despite trials, though they, do, they are not yet with Christ. Um, in our introduction tonight, let's talk about apocalypse joy and suffering now. We are to have an apple, uh, an apocalyptic type of joy and suffering now. And that's the end of verse 7. We may be found to result in praise and glory and honor as we live this life all the way up to the revelation of Jesus Christ. Number one in the note sheet then, we ended last Sunday night that proven faith ultimately is what glorifies the Lord up to his return for his children. That's at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word revelation is the word apocalypse. Write it down on the blank line. It's the pronunciation of the Greek term. Apocalypse. So the apocalypse is the coming of Christ, the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. It takes place in two stages. First the rapture, and then his second coming seven days later. He comes to the air and raptures the church, true born-again Christians, up into the air. And then seven days later he returns to the Mount of Olives to reestablish his kingdom here on earth. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, turn over there. We're to live with suffering. We are to expect suffering for the faith. And we're to do this because our eyes are on the apocalypse. Our eyes are on the revelation of Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 6. Paul said these words much the same as Peter. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 6. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction, pressure, tribulation, those who afflict you, pressure you, tribulate you, verse 7, and to give relief to you who are afflicted. This idea of relief is spiritual, not necessarily circumstantial. To give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with the mighty angels in flaming fire. Ultimately then, our relief will come through the revelation of Jesus Christ, the apocalypse. And he will deal out punishment to its fullest. That's what retribution is in verse 8. Literally, punished to the fullest. Deal out retribution to those who do not know God. That's a mark of an unbeliever. They do not know God and they do not obey him. These are the evidences of fake conversion. Bible ignorance and refusing to obey. Do not obey is an absolute condition. We all don't obey at times because we're sinners. But this is those who absolutely do not know God because they're unbelievers and absolutely refuse to obey him. Whenever I run into individuals like this person I was talking to that's an unbeliever, they have their own system of morality, and they don't follow the scriptures. And when I try to point them to the scriptures, they rebel against that. That's because they reject the Bible, and to reject the Bible is to be lost. So here in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 8, you have the mark of a judged person. Uh, judgment to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. That would be inside and outside of the church they do not obey. 
And this continues, verse 9, far more in-depth than what we read in 1 Peter. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. That's hell. It's eternal. And destruction does not refer in any way to annihilation. It is a place of eternal uselessness. This is one of the most frightening things about hell, personally, for me. To forever, for eternity, have nothing to do. No agenda. Um, the penalty of being unsaved. Uh, decay means the self-evident judicial verdict. The penalty is self-evident. And destruction is alethros in verse 9. It's from the idea of being ruined continuously, continuously undone, not annihilation, but uselessness, having nothing to do. Imagine for eternity, no agenda, nothing to do, no place to visit, no work, no purpose, falling forever, no goals, tortured as falling, burning, feeling full blast, perfect retribution pain, and no one to talk to all alone. This is frightening. Absolutely frightening. Away from the presence of the Lord. Notice that there's an aspect of God's omnipresence that is not there. Um, he is not there to hear them, to fellowship with them. So the presence of the Lord is referring to God's wrath is in hell. We know from Revelation 14 that his wrath is there. Um, his glory is not in hell, so that presence is not there. So God is there, God is omnipresent, and he's in hell, but not his glory. His wrath, the fires and tortures are evidence of his presence. He controls hell. So we need to remember that the and is an equal sign in verse 9. Away from the presence of the Lord, and in other words, that means from the glory of his power. So hell is not only marked by uselessness, it is marked by powerlessness. There is no doorway out. There is no ability to get out. That's, you know, it just amazes me that in the last days, as we were talking this morning in Sunday school, that the last days in the parables are marked by professed believers who do not know God and have no urgency of the coming judgment. You would think with the closer that Christ gets to returning to judge the world, that professed believers would get their act together, but instead they rebel all the more. They fundamentally have no loss of assurance. Rebellion, you can't continue to rebel while losing growing loss of assurance. It's just impossible. The whole purpose of losing assurance of salvation is to bring a person back to Christ. Holy terror is a marvelous benefit from God that afflicts a true believer so that they will get right with God. And it's amazing to me that rebels in the last days most times have no fear of coming destruction. They don't really believe in hell. They don't believe that they're going there. What a passage. 
So this is the judgment aspect. Now look at verse 10. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day. That's what we're waiting for. He's coming to destroy the world and to cast everyone into hell, but he's coming also for his saints. The saints of the church at the rapture, and then seven years later, the saints at the end of the tribulation. And to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. Fundamental belief. Saving faith. And we will marvel at him. We will not mourn like the wicked when Christ returns. We will marvel at his return. We will have our breath taken away as we are caught up to be with him in the air. First Peter chapter 1 then, at the end of verse 7, this is a, what would be called a prophetical tag. This is Peter starting to counsel us. He's been focusing on, you're going to suffer greatly, you need to have rejoicing. Distressed by various trials in verse 6. And when you rejoice in the midst of suffering, that is more valuable than gold. And that is a proven faith that cannot be vanquished when tested by fire, in verse 7. And the true believer, then, is found in the midst of suffering, rejoicing in salvation, praising and glorying and honoring the Lord. And this is the perseverance of the saints. The true believer will do it unto death or do it unto the rapture. The apocalypse, the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is counseling. Why is it counseling? Under letter A, you need to write this down. This is extremely important. Under letter A, the word revelation doesn't have the letter A, but I gave it a letter A, so just ignore the letter A. You're looking for the letter A, don't do that. Just the word revelation is the word apocalypse. This is counseling. Peter is saying, you need, as you suffer, to put your eyes practically every day on the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is counseling. It is implied. He will be revealed personally back on this planet. Is he revealed now? Yes, God is revealed through his word. God is revealed in our minds through the Holy Spirit's promptings. God is revealed in the church with his power. God is revealed working through truth to convict souls to be saved. He was revealed in human flesh at his first coming. This revelation refers to the coming of him back to this planet. His visible second revelation. Two parts, as I've said. Rapture before the tribulation. Second coming afterward. To the sky at the rapture. To the Mount of Olives at the second coming. Why is this counseling? Peter is telling us you have to remember and condition yourself and remind yourself how this is all going to end. It's going to end with the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is our hope. You need to hang on to the rapture. Again, reformers reject all that. Evangelical Reformed theology teaches there is no rapture. Eschatology is irrelevant. 
By saying that and teaching that and ignoring prophecy, they are destroying our, our great hope. So the church is being filled with individuals who have made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ and they have no hope on a daily basis of the rapture or God coming back to fix things at the second coming. It's astounding to me. So our praise for Christ starts in this life and continues through this life as we believe, as we get close to death or the rapture, we're going to be instantaneously with the Lord. But this is referring to his revelation on this planet. Our hope is at any moment he could be here. Jack Van Ippy, who said years ago his famous line, perhaps today. That would be wonderful. Number two, if we don't focus on eternity when suffering, if we don't wait and trust for heaven to give us final victory and justice, if we don't focus on eternity when suffering, if we don't wait and trust for heaven to give us final victory and justice in the midst of our suffering, then this is an axiom. Then trials will take us down. As we wait for justice, vindication, and relief in this life only. Because of a wholesale rejection of the rapture and a literal interpretation of the end times, which is called eschatology, Christians are replacing that theology with heresy. A charismatic heresy that says God wants you fixed and healed and experiencing miracles now wants you to have a second blessing of the Spirit. The first one at conversion is not enough. The heretical doctrine of subsequence. So many of the charismatics now have rolled over into the radical end of the spectrum of charismatics, which is now the normative. It used to be radical, now it's normative, that God is here to make you healthy and wealthy. And thank heavens those two words rhyme with each other so that we can remember it. Christianity makes us healthy and wealthy. What an aberration. Because they don't have any hope of the rapture and the coming of Jesus Christ, so you've got to build up your nice life now, see? As Joel Osteen said in that book, that heretical book, Best Life Now, you've got to build it up now. So Christianity's lost the whole foundation, counseling-wise, of the return of Christ to rapture us. Find a biblical counselor that will use that. You're suffering now, but just wait for the rapture. Your average evangelical, if they sat with a biblical counselor who said, yes, you're suffering greatly, terribly in your life, but the rapture will be at any minute, they will say back to you, as one professed believer said to me a few months ago, outside this church who's still lost, what is the rapture? It is so irrelevant, they don't even know what it is. Believe me, you know, decades ago, there were a lot of Christians that heard of the rapture, especially through that whole... Um, series that had been developed on the rapture and the tribulation by uh, Jenkins and Tim LaHaye. But uh, since then, from decades and decades ago, now we have people who don't believe in the rapture. They don't even know what it is. There's a reason why this guy I was talking to is in a Lutheran church, supposedly a conservative church that teaches the gospel, has no idea. He had no idea. I said, you have no idea what the rapture is. No. So does it ever mention the coming of Christ, the return of Christ? I was staring at him over a mechanics counter, and he goes like this. 
Imagine the tragedy. Our support system, write this under number two there, our support system is established by the foundation that at any moment we're going to get raptured. Now, I didn't get that last blank, and I know it, so let's go back to it, because I've gotten ahead of myself, so let's repeat number two. If we don't focus on eternity when suffering, if we don't wait and trust for heaven to give us final victory and justice in the midst of our suffering, then our trials will take us down as we wait for justice, vindication, and relief in this life only. And what happens is life goes on and you get no relief from suffering. This is where these type of believers crash and burn. I guess the only thing I can hope for is death and then being with Jesus. That's true, that is our great hope. But the Bible builds in another hope. It's mentioned right there. That Jesus is returning. This is not useless information. This is the final victory over suffering. So final victory over suffering will not occur until Christ is revealed from heaven for the church in the sky, on the ground to judge the planet. So again, under number two, the Bible does not promise us the resolution of all our sufferings in this life but promises us the potential for the revelation of Jesus Christ. We could be the very generation that never sees death. There's nothing held back prophetically to prevent the rapture of the church right now. Everything is absolutely in place prophetically. Pardon? Which one? The Bible does not promise us the resolution of all our sufferings for Christ in this life, but the potential, any moment, for the revelation of Jesus Christ. The Bible does not promise us the resolution of all our sufferings for Christ in this life, but the potential, any moment, revelation of Jesus Christ. This, I've talked to reformers, and I said, you, you know, you're, you're believing in fiction. You know, you believe in something like Superman. That's what you're believing in. I mean, sure, if I believe Superman's going to save Gotham and, and I believe that he's powerful and has a red cape, then maybe that'll get me through the day. Can you imagine there are Christians who think that way, that think we're absolutely nuts? I have read theologians who mock the doctrine of the rapture. They mock it. They just mock it. Hmm. I get angry at them and I pity them at the same time. How can we dump the, the doctrine of the rapture? Don't listen to reformers. You know, one of the most popular, and I've told you this before, Timothy Keller is a reformed, conservative reformed pastor, conservative in that he claims to be, believe in the inerrancy of Bible and uh, teaches uh, the gospel. But I've read some of his books, and uh, he doesn't believe in any of this. He just wipes the slate clean on eschatology. Why would I ever trust that man? Why, when there's others, especially of past history in the church that I can read, that are solid and sound Bible expositors in writing, why would I seek out a reformed author to learn anything? When they dump, they dump eschatology as if God wrote nonsense that can't be understood 
and then they become preterists like R.C. Sproul was, and they take the entire book of Revelation and dump it back to A.D. 70. And man, do you have to strangle the book of Revelation to do that. It says the whole book of Revelation was fulfilled when Jerusalem fell in A.D. 70 under Titus the general. Well, thank you so much for that. I can toss that book then, right? If all happened in past history, why even read it? Exactly. They don't. They don't teach it. How scary. I'm harping on this because the church today is dying. It's dying because people like us are fewer and fewer. I was so refreshed uh, Friday night, I think it was, we were watching the last session of John MacArthur got up and preached. Man, the guy is busted up from falling. Skinny as a rail, head all broken, and he gets up and preaches for an hour. And you know what he defended? The rapture, tribulation, second coming of Christ. I know as a fact a good portion of those that are in that audience were reformers at these conferences. Good for him. He paid a heavy price to do that. And he said in that sermon, how can we ignore such an important doctrine? How can we ignore it? The church will be at a great loss when he's gone. That is for sure. This is counseling. And reformers think it's pie in the sky. So you sit down with a troubled believer and they're hurting desperately and what you say to that believer is this. You need to praise and glory and honor the Lord in the midst of your suffering until the Lord is revealed to us at the rapture for us. That's your hope. Place your hope in that. And you'll get an answer back, most likely from some believers, if you say that to them. What good is that doing me now? That's my hope. If I really believe it, and if I'm in the middle of suffering, any kind of suffering, my hope is right now, any moment, I could be caught up. If I don't really believe in that, then it's going to be irrelevant. I love the Puritan writers. I do. But not one of them will ever mention the rapture. They didn't believe it. So you have to have a very careful discernment when you read Puritan writings. You will never be taught the rapture in any writing by a Puritan. None of them. Isn't that sad? To lose such an important part of our lives in the Christian faith? It's very sad. Number three. If a Christian does not long to live, didn't say does not live long, okay, so make sure you get that right. If a Christian does not long to live for the praise, glory, and honor of the Lord Jesus Christ in this life, why would he long to praise him in the next life? If a Christian does not long to live for the praise, glory, and honor of the Lord Jesus Christ in this life, why would he long to praise him in the next life? He wouldn't. And underneath that, why do we praise 
and glory and honor him because the ending is coming quick. Apocalypse now. Joy and suffering now. It's coming. I believe this absolutely. There's not a day I go by that I'm not believing in, praying for, and looking up for the rapture. When I drive my truck and I see such chaos and such evil, I look up at the sky and I say, Come now, pierce the sky, pierce the clouds. This is our reality. Why are they taking it away from us, these wicked reformers? I don't understand it. It makes no sense to me. This is an essential part of our lives. Obviously, Peter's not a Calvinist at the end of verse 7. Or he wouldn't even be mentioning the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because amillennialists don't even believe in a second coming. Isn't that astounding? Peter does. Thank you, Lord, for Peter. So our passion in this life to praise him is supported, again, I'm saying it repetitively, at our everyday sense at the coming of Jesus Christ. So many believers are worldly oriented. Their goals are money, relationships, the physical, fame, career, advancement. That's not our goal. Our goal is praise and glory of the Lord at his revelation, and we want that revelation for the church now. Number four, waiting for the Lord's return is supposed to be the supreme driving force. Waiting for the Lord's return is supposed to be the supreme driving force of all that we do for Christ in this life. Waiting for Christ's return is supposed to be the supreme driving force of all that we do for Christ in this life. It's an eternal longing that the Spirit builds in. He's coming. He's coming. And he'll come for his church. As Paul told the Thessalonians, you will be spared the wrath to come, which is the tribulation. We're not going to go through it. We haven't seen anything of suffering until we see the tribulation. And we won't as believers. So we're going to be spared the tribulation. And what gets us through the horrible suffering in this life that we face is Christ coming now. Nothing else helps me. Watching TV, making money, trying to distract myself, sleep. None of this fixes me. Nothing, none of this will support my joy in Christ. What supports it is an absolute God-given, firm belief in the rapture is going to be at any moment. If we're not driven by such a goal, then that Christian who's not driven by such a goal is not in God's will. If we aren't living for the rapture, the revelation of Jesus Christ for his church, we can't even fathom what God's will is. For that type of goal is what drives all of our decision-making for the believer. Our repentance of sin is driven by that. I don't want to mess with sin. He could come back at any moment. One writer says this, It is not the testing of our faith that is to the glory of God, but the fact that our faith has met the test and has been approved that redounds to his glory when the Lord returns. Christian joy in the midst of suffering is one of the most potent weapons and means to glorify God, and it's supported, in verse 7, by our constant waiting and looking for Christ's return. Now let me remind you again, as I have many times in this series on suffering, 
though God is with us and helping us in the midst of personal suffering, this is not what he's talking about. He's talking about the consequence of living for the Lord Jesus Christ and facing great suffering. Okay? He's also not talking about suffering as a consequence of our sin that never gives glory to God. This is a godly believer humbly suffering for the faith while having joy in his salvation, proven and hopeful. So here is what Peter is saying once again under number four. By, by mentioning the revelation of Jesus Christ, he is establishing our hope. This is our hope. Christians can become depressed and they can say, I have no hope in my life. This is it. Yeah, yeah, I know he's coming back. That type of statement means you don't even believe it. This is our hope. This is our hope. This is our great, great hope. Father, we thank you so much for this hope. We can't climb on the roof of this church, sit down with a blanket, and wait. We have to keep working, witnessing, reading, studying, growing. We have to keep on keeping on. But with a backpack over our shoulders and our arms through the strap, the backpack, Lord, of our responsibilities in this life that weigh heavy on our shoulders as we walk slumped over, suffering for your name, gripping with white, sweaty fingers the straps of the backpack, our heads look up. For our redemption draws near. And we will soon be with you. No uselessness. No falling and burning. Much to do. Great purpose. Perfect joy. Fellowshipping with all those that we love who love you. Never alone. Never crying, having our own apartment in heaven, as the Bible teaches us in the Gospel of John, you're preparing a dwelling place for us, which means an individual little place to live in heaven. You are so lovely, we won't be homeless on the golden streets of Jerusalem. Oh, we can't wait. Standing here, weighed down, sitting here, weighed down. And at any moment, we inhale and we're staring at you in the sky, shaking with shock and utter joy and surprise. Then we exhale and are instantly in heaven. What a glorious day. Lord Jesus, please come quickly. In your name, amen.